welcome to the sermon podcast of Redeemer Anglican Church of Franklin, Pennsylvania. Through every sermon, we hope that you are encouraged by the Word of God and the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. To find out more about our church, visit our website at franklinredeemer.org. If you haven't visited Colleen in my home for the past, in the past year, um, then you haven't had the uh, encounter with our roughly 135-pound puppy, Newfoundland, named Bruce. If you know anything about Newfoundlands, they get rather large, um, they are gentle giants, super passive. He's sweet, he likes to drool on you, likes to try to lay on top of you, um, and likes to lick your face. But so there's really no aggressive bone within most Newfoundlands. Um, I had read that they're horrible guard dogs uh, because even if you're being attacked, um, they will not attack your attacker. Um, the best that they will do is they will use their like massive 150 pound body to try to wedge in between the person attacking you. But nonetheless, there's, you know, it's not complete passivity and gentleness. I remember one time Bruce had just gotten to the size in which he no longer had to actually like stand up to get things off of the counter. He, he had gotten to the size where he could just walk by the table or the island and just you know, steal things. And he was, he was, he discovered this new ability of his and was very fond of it. And so he started into this habit of, of doing that. Um, anything that was close enough to the edge of any counter that he could just reach up and snatch, he was, and it was starting to get frustrating. And I remember I was having a pretty, a particularly rough and stressful day. And I ran upstairs real quick and came downstairs and I can't remember what it was, but Bruce had stolen a large amount of something edible off of the island and I had noticed it and I was at my wits end and so I did what all um all dog trainers like the dog whisperer and everything they tell you to do I I flipped out and started screaming at him because that's what you're supposed to do when you're training a dog and so as I was screaming at him I yelled at him to get into his pen which is his timeout spot but instead he ran the other direction and so then I screamed even louder because that was going to work and so as I was screaming at him I ran towards him to grab him and he looked back and he growled and I didn't know he even had that in him. And so after he growled at me, I growled back with even louder screams and maybe a couple of words that a priest shouldn't say. And I was really upset. And so then in that he turned around and and ran really quickly with his tail between his legs into his pen and just sat there. Um, We reconciled about A half hour later, whenever I finally let him out of his pen, he followed me around licking me constantly because he felt bad. But I share that because it's kind of part of the nature of of any animal. No matter how gentle, no matter how little aggression they might have, is when they feel put in a corner, when they get really afraid, 
then even something that's not part of their character will come out. And that's usually the most dangerous dogs are the dogs that feel threatened and scared. I mean, if most of us know, even if you're not an outdoorsman, there's certain scenarios where a black bear is very dangerous. Usually aren't. Um, One is, you know, if you get between a mama and her cubs, which has nothing to do with the point I'm making right now, but just as a word of wisdom, if you see a baby cub, don't go up to it because the mom is nearby, Um, which also translates into the human world, like don't mess with a mama's babies. But then there's also the other scenario in which if you, a, a black bear is scared and feels cornered, or if you surprise it and scare it and it doesn't feel like it has hope for a way out. That's whenever a black bear becomes extremely dangerous. But it translates not just in the animal kingdom, but I think the same is true for people. I hear a lot of discussions and reflections with what is going on right now. And one of the concerns that people have with Putin is the fact that Ukraine is doing so well. He's kind of getting his back put up against the wall. And everybody knows that a man with power is very, very dangerous whenever he finds himself without hope of a way to get out. I mean, the the same as we see with Kim Jong-un and the concerns with him. I mean, all of the stuff that he's doing, the craziness, most experts say stems down to his deep fear that the U.S. or Japan or South Korea are going to depose him. And so he's setting up all these different systems. And we, we see this through rulers and leaders and dictators throughout history. Slaughtering potential opposition, anxiety and fear that somebody is going to overthrow them. So then they have to kill anybody who might have possibly take their power. You have all of these different things playing out. And it's, it's, it's humans acting like a bear that's cornered. Or a dog that's afraid. And I found that often the most arrogant, aggressive, confrontational people are usually the most deeply insecure. And I can confess for myself. When I usually say or do things, speak in a manner to people I love and care about in a way that I deeply regret, it's often because I'm in that moment afraid about the future. And I'm feeling most threatened. And so then it's whenever I act and speak in a way sometimes that creates discord and disharmony and breaks unity. And I think 
this underlying aspect of our own nature, our own fallen nature, is why in the closing parts of Romans that we read here today, Paul is writing about an issue of of discord, of animosity and division within the church and calling for unity and calling for the church to be bound together. And in so doing, he emphasizes hope. So in this second Sunday in Advent, I want to look at this passage and focus in on hope and how the hope we have plays out in the community in which we form. So I'm going to look at briefly the context for the letter to Romans because it makes sense of what we just read. And then from that, look at where our hope comes from, how hope transforms our community and then how hope is cultivated. So first, the, the context for the letter to Romans, it's a influential, it's a valuable, it's a very rich letter. But the context is quite intriguing and interesting. It's in the late, late, 40s, a, B, late 40s AD, Emperor Claudius signed an edict to expel all of the Jews from the city of Rome. Likely, most scholars think it was because of riots and uprising amongst the Jews that was tied to, to growing tensions about the, the, uh, the proclamation of the gospel amongst the Jews and divisions over that. And then in the mid-50s, when Nero took over after Claudius's death, Nero rescinded Claudius's decree and allowed the Jews to return back to Rome, which would have included all of the Christian Jews that were in Rome during that time. So right before Paul is writing this letter to the church of Rome, you had the influx of numerous Christian Jews coming back, rejoining the church, a church that then had been growing and increasing in Gentile Christians. Gentile Christians who remained because they weren't part of Claudius's edict. And during that time, Nero's rescinding of the ex- expulsion of the Jews was not very popular amongst many of the Roman people. They saw them as this small minority group that was causing deep issues and problems within the great Rome. And so as they are coming back together, you have both the deep-rooted issues between Jew and Gentile, but you also have many cultural issues and problems that are being faced as they're reforming into one church. And that is in, it is in that context that Paul pens the letter of Romans to the church in Rome. And as you read through the book of Romans, you come to the close of the letter, which is what we read today in chapter 15. It's not the actual end of the letter, but it's the final point that Paul makes 
before he gets into a, a description of his ministry and his personal intentions to visit Rome and then his closing um, remarks to different people that he knows. And in this final point that he makes, as we read, we see an emphasis on the unity of the church and its interaction with each other. Actually, it's 14 and 15 are focusing on that aspect of unity. And what's interesting is if you look in context and read through this letter, not as a theological treatise, but instead as a pastoral letter to a church deeply divided, that you'll see that 14 and 15 come at the end not as, as practical instruction for moral living tacked on to an end of a great book on theology, as it's often read. But instead, 14 and 15 is coming to the apex of the reason why the letter was written in the first place. Why all of that theological argumentation in the beginning of the letter was all put forth was to lead to this climax. We see that in the beginning of the letter to the Romans, Paul lays out and argues for this central doctrine of justification By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we see kind of him laying and mapping things out. But he he kind of makes this kind of this central point. They they, they call it like a chiasm. It hits in the middle of his argumentation. Then works its way out through the rest of the argumentation. And it's found in, in, in Romans 5. In Romans 5. He makes this kind of summary statement. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he goes on to say, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In this kind of summary of what he was arguing to, we have this statement that is pointing to this idea of justification by grace through faith. And the work of the Holy Spirit that has been poured out to us through that grace. And argues that then it grants endurance in the current trials. But all pointing towards the cultivation of hope and our reconciliation. And if you notice what is spoken in that point, if you read through Romans, those same points are then fleshed out and worked out throughout the letter. And then what we find in what we just read today are those exact same 
points. No longer in more grand theological terms, but being fleshed out in the real life context of a deeply divided church in Rome where there are social, cultural, religious, ethnic, multitude of reasons that there's animosity and division within the church. And so in that, as we look at chapter 15, we have these calls that Paul gives us. These calls that are found in verse 1 to 2. He says that the church... That the strong are to bear with the weak. It's translated, we we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Just a real quick note on that because this is easily misunderstood because of the way it's translated. But the, the word failings is actually just another word for weak. It's often translated as like, oh, well, the, the, the failings as in that, 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 that bear with the sinfulness of those who are weak. But actually, the proper translation is the word translated failings means powerlessness. It gives a very different sensibility towards those who might be weaker brothers and sisters. And to bear does not mean put up with. The Greek word translated bear means to actually carry. To uphold. And so he says that we are to literally stoop down and carry those who are weak. In the places in which they are powerless. He tells the church that they are to be of one voice, of one concord, in unity, in harmony, in verses 5 through 6. He says that the church is to welcome the other, those who are outside and different, describing a Christ-like hospitality. But these commands that he gives, he gives by pointing them back to the gospel of Christ's works that he fleshes out theologically throughout the beginning of the letter. Pointing them to how Christ took on the reproach, which means the disgrace that was due to us. And so then we bear with the weaker. This reproach that he took on, he explains further earlier in the letter by describing what he took upon himself upon the cross on our behalf. He points to how Christ welcomed us. And if you go back in the letter, he talks about that welcome. That while we were yet enemies of God, Christ welcomed us into his family. And then we see in his many quotations of the Old Testament that he points to this unity by pointing back to Christ's fulfillment of Torah, his fulfillment of the law by bringing the Gentiles into God's people by grace, which he fleshes out through multiple chapters 
in the beginning of his letter. And so he is pointing back to this justification that is ours by grace in Christ. Calling for our unity, calling for harmony and accord amongst one another, but not calling for these things by giving some type of legal dictate, but by reminding them, by fleshing out the fact that these theological doctrines, this doctrine of our justification that is in Christ by grace, is a very real reality that does not just change what we proclaim with our mouths or what we believe in a theological test, but instead works its way out as it becomes real to us in the way that our life and our community comes together and is is formed. But then, in the midst of all of that, he continually reiterates that theme, that apex of his theological argument found in chapter 5. This theme that we have hope through trials and this hope was brought about by justification by faith in the presence of the Spirit. In the midst of all these calls for unity within the church, he says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And then interestingly, at the very end of his final point of argumentation within this brilliant letter, he ends with a doxological blessing. Kind of like how we end our service with a blessing. But Paul's blessing that he speaks over the church in Rome is may the God of hope fill you with all joys, with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit. You may abound in hope. See, for Paul. Everything that is being built upon and built towards of this reality of a reconciled and redeemed people who are living in in communion together, breaking down the walls of hostility. Are tied to a justification by faith. And the hope that it produces. And for a church that was deeply struggling and divided, that was, had animosity and infighting and, and, and many, many issues of breaking apart, he finishes by praying that by the power of the Holy Spirit, they might have hope. Because Paul think, understands, and inspired by the Spirit, sees that we aren't that different than a Nufi or a bear. That when we don't have a secure hope, when we don't realize and have our hope rooted in something very sound and secure, we lash out very violent and nasty ways. So how does this hope that Paul speaks of 
that he prays as a blessing over the Church of Rome, and subsequently, through the Word of God, prays as a blessing over each and every one of us. And not just our church, every church in this community, in our world. It changes in so many ways, but a few, as as I think about it, is that hope that is rooted in God's faithfulness removes that destructive insecurity. When our hope is rooted in that, there's no longer a need to lash out in self-defense. God is faithful. We are not threatened. So we're free to love those who are even in hostility and opposition towards us. Hope rooted in God's grace removes the need to prove superiority. When it's all his grace and our hope is in his grace, not in proving ourselves to be superior in any form or fashion, we no longer need to point out the weaknesses and failings of others. Actually, as Paul says, strength is shown in associating with the weak. Stooping down and lifting them up. Instead of putting them down by trying to make ourselves seem superior. Hope rooted in unwarranted acceptance or the welcome of Christ while we were yet sinners enables us to welcome those that we are often told to reject. Which means that there's no need to try to keep an appearance of cleanliness by rejecting those whom society, religion, church, or anybody else has said to be dirty. I think about uh, just conversations with our boys, and there's that old adage, you know, be careful who your friends are. And there's wisdom in that. Like, Scripture says, like, be careful who your close fellowship is with in communion. But, But be careful who your friends are is not a biblical instruction. I remember talking to the boys and there's certain certain kids whose families are an absolute mess and those kids are an absolute mess. And the initial thought is like, stay away from them because they might corrupt you. And there needs to be some wisdom. Like, I'm not going to let the boys go to a party at one of those kids' houses. But I remember thinking about it and telling them, you know what? Don't be afraid to be associated with them. Be friendly to them. Welcome them. Invite them. Because our hope is rooted in an unwarranted acceptance. And so even if it makes us appear like Jesus appeared to the religious, a drunkard, and a sinner because of whom he loved and welcomed. Our hope is not in how we appear to others, so we are free to welcome the unwelcomable. Our hope, rooted in God and his promises alone, enables us to have patience and grace in the messiness of community. 
No longer despairing. Sorry. Um, No longer needing to frantically work to create some semblance of perfection. Because our hope is not in our ability to create the appearance of what we hope things to be, but our hope is in God's promises that he will make all things right. And so in that, we can live and endure and love in the midst of the messiness of community. And that's the danger is whenever our hope is in the ability of the thing to be what it ought to be, then we will either destroy the thing or we will lose hope. When our hope is for the church or to find the church that is going to be that church that the church should be, then we either crush the church because we keep kicking people out because everybody jacks it up. And we lose hope in church. And the same thing is having that perfect family. We either then just completely reject family or we destroy our family trying to make our family perfect. But when our hope is not in those things, but the hope is rooted in a promise that God will one day make those things right, we can endure. We can rejoice. We can celebrate. We can love and we can serve in very broken, jacked up, messy reality that is human community. And hope that is rooted in God's reconciliation enables us to continue to seek peace with those who have harmed us. No longer despair of hard, despairing of the hardness of others or creating self-preservation by condemning the other. Because reconciliation is a work of God and he can do anything. And so we can continue to pray and to hope for those who have harmed us and don't seem to care because reconciliation is always possible. And finally, a hope that is rooted in the first and second advent of our true and Lord and Savior. A hope that is rooted in what he had done when he had come And rooted in what he will one day do, perfecting all things, putting all things under his rule and authority. A hope that is rooted in that removes any sense of being an animal backed into a corner, regardless of what situation we find ourselves in. True gospel hope when it takes root in our hearts and in lives, radically transforms every facet of how we do community together and live life in the world in which we live. But how then do you cultivate that hope? Especially whenever you feel as if you're losing hope. I think in this passage, we see both a practical reality and a promised reality. 
The practical found in verse four, I'll read it again, says for whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Searching God's word. But there's many different ways you can read God's word. You can read God's word as a way to try to destroy community because your hope is not rooted in Christ and his gospel. So in that, your hope is found in your ability to be right. So you can read the scriptures all you want as more arsenal to prove your superiority and rightness. You can read it for theological insights. You can read it for moral instruction. You can read it for many different things. But one of the things that I think is most important, something you'll find that we do hear from the pulpit, something that the New Testament authors, the apostles did when they read the Old Testament and the early church fathers did when they read the New Testament, is when they read the scriptures, they first and foremost read it in what theologians call as Christocentric manner. They read the scriptures through the light of Christ and they sought to see Christ in all of the scriptures. And I would challenge you is there's many different ways to read scriptures and it's good to see them in different ways. But maybe during the Advent season to read the scriptures with a singular focus of seeking from God to reveal in his word a word about your hope. As you read through your Bible, to prayerfully ask, what does this reveal to me about Christ? And what does this speak to me about my hope? For Paul says that it's through the scriptures in our endurance that we are cultivating hope. But secondly, in verse 13, that blessing, he says... That may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the beautiful thing. This is what's so radical about grace. Is that we have hope that even when losing hope, we are not without hope. Even in the darkest of times. Notice this theme, as I said, that theme of chapter 5 that's laid out here in this doxological blessing. Notice it also in chapter 8. I'll I'll read a portion of it. It says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he goes on and then says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For hope... For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think 
In many ways, as Paul is talking about this hope that carries us, this hope that saves us, this hope that, is, that allows him to see all of the horrible things that has come upon him as nothing compared to the hope that his hope is in, that in the midst of that, he says that the Holy Spirit then is also given to us, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us whenever we don't even know what to pray, we don't know what to say. And I think in many ways... This pouring out of the Holy Spirit not only helps us when we don't know what to pray or don't have the strength to pray. The Holy Spirit also hopes for us when we have felt like we've lost hope. That even when we don't feel it, we don't perceive it, and we don't think it's there, we are never without hope. Because we have been given the Holy Spirit and he will not leave or forsake us. So, I think the power of Advent, what I love about it, is it's a season when we acknowledge darkness. We don't wash over it. We don't pretend like things are okay. We acknowledge the darkness for what it is. But in the darkness, Advent is about reorienting where our hope lies. The appearing of Christ. Both to die on our behalf and redeem us, and the appearing that will come that will finally cast out the darkness fully and put all things to right. And it's also timely that we have this word from Paul, not just for ourselves as a church, but Christmas time can be glorious and it can be a hard time for many different reasons. But I think for some, it can always be a little bit of a hard time because you have a lot of gatherings and get togethers. And during Christmas, that often means gathering and getting together with people that you normally don't because you don't want to. Sometimes you have to get together with family. Family that have hurt you. That are hard to bear. That are challenging. But as we have this word, if we do so as people of hope, we do so very differently. As we enter into those old hurts and pains, those awkward comments and passive aggressive statements, that we can engage and encounter into those things as people of hope. So, my challenge is that all of us would let Advent prepare us, not just for Christmas or the dark winter that is ahead. But prepare us that we might be a people of hope that is rooted in the gospel of justification by grace alone. That we might bear with others and with each other because we're all, we're all weird and annoying in our own ways. And we can be irritating, each and every one of us.
But because our hope is rooted in the hope of the gospel, we can unite our voices together around that one shared common truth that holds us together. Learning to live in harmony in one accord, despite the failings, the animosity, the awkwardness and the differences that would want to divide all of us. And so I close with the blessing of St. Paul. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for upcoming sermons, and consider joining us in person for Sunday worship. To learn more, check out our website at franklinredeemer.org. joy of my heart and the boast of my tongue thy free grace alone from the first to the last